Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Tonight on The Readout. It is a day of great loss. But Queen Elizabeth II leaves a great legacy. Today the crown passes. As it has done for more than a thousand years. To our new monarch our new head of state, His Majesty, King Charles III. God save the King. After a remarkable 70-year reign, Queen Elizabeth dies peacefully at home in Scotland. Tonight, the drastic changes to her empire over the years and the persistent fascination with her family here in the former colonies. As the British people grieve, the only monarch most of them have ever known. She's been part of my life forever and you know she's not here and you know you, you hope but you appreciate that you know her age it was expected at some point but even when it happens it's still a shock and we begin tonight with queen elizabeth the longest reigning british monarch whose rule spans seven decades she died today at the age of 96 and make no mistake it is a watershed moment the second Elizabethan era has ended. There is a new king. And it's a moment intrinsically tied to this specific queen, a towering figure so profound. Her very name defines an age. While her death raises important questions about how or even if the monarchy will go on, it isn't just Britain's mourning or reacting. It's people all across the globe and certainly here in the U.S. Where fascination over the royal family reached a fever pitch during the Princess Diana years and in many ways, continues today. Moments ago, President Biden and the First Lady signed condolence books at the British Embassy in Washington to honor Queen Elizabeth. Good morning for all of you. She's a great lady. We're so delighted we got to meet her. The president will also address the queen's death tonight as world leaders extend their condolences to the royal family and to the British people. Queen Elizabeth was the second longest reigning monarch in history. French King Louis XIV ruled the longest of all. But the span of history that Queen Elizabeth lived is remarkable, covering 14 U.S. presidencies. That's nearly 30 percent, by the way, of all of American history. She saw 15 British prime ministers come and go. Her first, Winston Churchill, was born in 1874. Compare that to Britain's newest prime minister, Liz Truss, who was born in 1975. That is an entire century between the birth years of these leaders who served this queen. As leaders changed, as countries fought for independence, often from the British themselves, Queen Elizabeth remained both a figure and a witness to, to a tumultuous period spanning the mid-20th century to the first quarter of the 21st. Crowned in 1953 at Westminster Abbey, the first ever coronation to be televised, making her essentially the first television queen, stepping into her role just years after India won its independence from British colonial rule. In a famous speech, Elizabeth and a princess in 1947 made this promise as she celebrated her 21st birthday on a royal tour in South Africa. I declare before you all 
that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and to the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. We cannot talk about this queen or the British monarchy or even the UK itself without confronting the colonial horrors of this period, the violence, and how Queen Elizabeth as institution and as icon reigned during the remarkable decline of the British Empire, from the wave of independence sweeping across Africa and the Caribbean during the 1960s, Kenya, Malawi, Zambia, Botswana, Nigeria, South Africa, Ethiopia, Guyana, Barbados, Trinidad and Tobago, the list just goes on and on and on, to the British handing Hong Kong back to China, ending more than 150 years of colonial rule. British overseas territories do still exist. The hammer hasn't completely fallen. But its apex, at its apex, the British Empire claimed roughly a quarter of all the land on Earth. The once global empire was crumbling before Elizabeth ascended to the throne. Yet much of its decline occurred during her reign, as dozens of new states fought for and achieved independence. This, too, will forever exist as part of her legacy, the last colonial queen. Joining me now is NBC's Kelly Kobiea in Edinburgh, Scotland, and Dr. Shola Mimo, lawyer, activist, and author of This Is Why I Resist. And I want to go to you first, Kelly. Uh, tell us what's going on today. We know this has been a day of mourning um, throughout the British Empire, uh, the, the, well, throughout Great Britain, I should say, uh, including in Scotland, where the royal family had their home. That's right, Joy. And people are coming out tonight, braving the rain here in Scotland, as well as in London and in Windsor, to lay flowers to mark the moment when the queen, the longest serving monarch in this country, a queen who has reigned over this country for 70 years, uh, has has now died. We first knew something was not right at about half past noon local time here in the UK when Buckingham Palace put out an unusual statement, unusual in its very strong language, saying that the Queen's doctors are concerned for Her Majesty's health and that she was going to be uh, watched by her doctors uh, basically around the clock. Uh, that then followed uh, by her children uh, rushing to her side. Prince Charles, now King Charles, and Princess Anne were already in Scotland. Her two younger children, Prince Andrew and Prince Edward, uh, and Prince William, her grandson, Prince Harry, uh, both making their way to Balmoral, her, her country residence here in Scotland as well. We knew that she hadn't been doing all that well, particularly over the past year. We heard almost a year ago that she was having episodic mobility issues, but the palace never elaborated on that. We, we had no idea what the, what the cause was or what the real issue was. We did see her from time to time walking, uh, with a cane, uh, but we also saw her walking of her own accord under her own power. And of course, the latest picture of her just two days ago, beaming, smiling widely, uh, in Scotland as she received the new prime minister, Liz Truss, but again, uh, at that time, using a cane. She has been canceling events lately as well. That was another clue that perhaps her health was deteriorating. She had looked thinner and more frail. And then today, just six hours after that first statement came out from Buckingham Palace, another statement at 6.30 this evening, local time, saying that the Queen died peacefully this afternoon at Balmoral. 
King Charles III put out his own statement after the Queen's death. Of course, he became king immediately upon her death, saying that it's a moment of great sadness for me and members of my family, and also making note of just the outpouring um, of emotion from people, not just in this country, but in the Commonwealth and around the world, really, because she was a beloved and admired monarch in many parts of the world. Over the next week and a half, this country, of course, is in mourning. There will be ceremonies here in Scotland, as well as in London and in Windsor. Uh, the public will be invited to pay their respects as the Queen lies in state in London next week before she's laid to rest at Windsor with her late husband, Prince Philip. Joy. Thank you. NBC's Kelly Cobier in Edinburgh. I uh, appreciate it. All right, let's bring in Dr. Shola Mastro-Bamimu and MSNBC royal contributor Susanna Lipscomb. And, and Ms. Lipscomb, I do want to go to you first. Um, I want to play this soundbite. This is from 1940. Um, this was the first sort of public appearance. This was a radio broadcast by uh, then Princess Elizabeth. Take a listen. We know, every one of us, that in the end all will be well. For God will care for us and give us victory and peace. And when peace comes, remember, it will be for us, the children of today, to make the world of tomorrow a better and happier place. You know, you think about the fact that this is a 14-year-old girl whose father was not originally meant to be king. Uh, he was the brother of the king. And he's thrust into the monarchy. And then that means that Basically, her life as being a normal little girl is over. Um, but she definitely seemed to enter that uh, era of her life uh, with quite a bit of poise for such a young girl. Can you talk a little bit about her and just her longevity and her ability to change and shift with the times? Do we have, Ms. Do we have Susanna Lipscomb? Okay, I don't think we have her. So I'm going to go to Dr. Shola on this. Because I think for a lot of Britons, this is the only queen they've ever known. And we're talking about people your age, your grand, your mother's age, and your grandmother's age, probably. You know, for most Britons, for, you know, my family, they were even over there. This is the only queen they've ever known. She was able to adapt. She did prove to be remarkably adaptable. Well, I suppose the first thing I'll say is, well, I think a lot of people, yes, are right now paying their respects um, at the— longest reigning monarch of the United Kingdom. And people, she, she meant different things to different people. I would question whether or not um, the monarchy was able to adapt because I, I would say that in the last number of years, and I don't mean last few years, I think there would be a question about whether or not they did adapt because there were many cases where people felt that they were out of touch, right? Um, what she did stand for I think and what she represented was um, was a system and a protocol and a way of the way things are and have always been. And I think from that perspective, people saw her as as a leader in that light, as somebody they could rely on, you know, with the stiff upper lip and, you, you know, the, the, the queen is never changing. So I would not necessarily agree that she was adaptable, so to speak. I mean, there's so many different examples of where people felt that the, the royal family was out of touch. You know, it, it, I, I said that because 
when Diana came along, I think for a lot of Americans who are, you know, very much obsessed with it, and for whatever reason, these colonies of this country are very obsessed with the royal family, especially with Diana, who was this very, very different kind of royal who, you know, reached out to patients with AIDS and young children and would touch people without gloves on, people who were black and brown and around the world, and was just different. And the royal family had to adapt to her, and it was wrenching for them to do it, but they had to do it. And then when she died, the queen had to— for the public relations of it was so difficult that she really had to embrace her in death in a way that I think was difficult. And then you talk about Camilla, I mean, who was involved in that whole thing, where they now yeah. had to accept the idea that a divorcee could actually be queen. I mean, so in that sense, all of the, I mean, there was a time when the Britons, you know, they were not sure that they could invite a divorced person to go to a state dinner. And now they have somebody who is a divorced woman who is married to the now crowned king. Oh, that's correct. But I would not say that the royal family, I would not say that the royal family adapted to Princess Diana because quite frankly, the opposite is true. Because if they had, that when she passed away, it was because of the outrage of the public in not seeing any demonstration of affection or sorrow from the royal family that forced the queen and the royal family to come out. Uh, and uh, Princess Diana was a whole different, a whole different human being from uh, from the Queen and from members of the royal family. What you saw with Chris, Princess Diana was somebody that was relatable. You you kind of felt Princess Diana was your sister, your friend, and she was, um, you know, she showed emotion. You didn't really get that with the Queen. The Queen was very much, you know, arm's length. I think people romanticized her as you would say a grandmother, but the institution that is the monarchy was very much as a at an arm's length from the public. So I would not say it's the same thing. I think that yes, you're right that circumstances of the modern world um, forced them to have to take a step back and go, okay, look, we can't carry on with. You can't marry, a, you know, a, a divorced person, right? They had to right. make changes, especially what happened with Princess Margaret, um, and they had different stories. So with Charles, who had, I would say, I mean, to be fair to him, he had borne the the decision of his parents to marry somebody other than the person he really wanted to marry. I, yeah. I think it made sense at the end of the day for them to go, okay, we, we've tried and um, that didn't work out. Okay, marry who you want to marry. But I would not say they adapted as such because then you have Meghan Markle, which is a perfect example of how the has not adapted at all. Yeah, and I do think we do now have uh, Susanna Lipscomb. I want you to weigh in on this because it does seem that Queen Elizabeth, the late Queen Elizabeth, she did occupy this very unique space in that she was doing what all the previous monarchs had done, but doing it on television. Uh, and on, at first on the radio and then on television and sort of living, it was a much more public royal family, if, if, if I may say, more accessible because you could see their lives, you could see them as a family. Do you think that that has changed, um, to Dr. Shola's point, the way that the institution evolved? Yes, and I'm so sorry for leaving you hanging earlier there, Joy. I think that's absolutely part of it because, of course, we know that hers was the first televised coronation. Um, half the adult population of Britain watched it, even though there were only two and a half million TV sets in the country at the time, um, and then went on to choose to have her Christmas messages broadcast from 1957. Um, and so that meant that each year there was an opportunity, how, albeit packaged in a, in a quite a formal way, to get some sense of who she was 
her values were. I mean, it's interesting if you want to know something about the Queen, you need to look back at those Christmas messages. She often talked about her Christian faith. She was invariably positive. She often talked about hope. I mean, there's a wonderful little instance where there was one speech where she chatted with the royal children about the name of one of her corgis called Dash. And she says, you know, the word you say when you're cross. <laughs> and I think also with the film from 1969, which gave an insight into their domestic lives as a royal family, which was watched by more people than watched man landing on the moon, there was an opportunity to see behind the veil. But at the same time, um, television was often unkind to them. There were parody, they were parodied in the show um, in the 1980s. We've seen more recently films like The Queen and the series The Crown. And she's never had a sort of right of rebuttal. She was never able to say anything in her defense. Um, and, and we've also most recently seen her humor, as we did, of course, at the Platinum Jubilee with the scene with Paddington and pulling the sandwich out of her handbag. So I think that television has given us an insight into her life at the same time as allowing her to be very publicly maligned. And, and indeed, and I just have to show this because it is sort of dramatic, the world um, that has that changed in the time that I, I really wish we had more time. This is the British Empire in 1945, um, when Elizabeth was crowned in 1952. Britain had a massive empire. It was more than 70s overseas territories. And then by 2015, you can see the reduction in just the, scape, the scope and size to almost nothing. Um, and I wonder how you feel about her having to preside over that massive change in what the British Empire was. I think this is why we have to accept that um, the Queen means different things to different people, okay? And this is important to note. Now, and just as you mentioned earlier, Joy, that because at the time she came into, um, became a queen, she came and she became queen of the British Empire. And the British Empire was a, a colonizing empire, which made her a colonizer queen, right? Just as right now, she's revered as, um, as a global leader because she's the head of state of the United Kingdom, which is recognized as a global power. And I think two things can be true. And in the, the, the part of a legacy, is that colonization, it is the atrocities that were committed in the name of Queen or country during the colonizing period. And, um, and yes, many countries fought hard. Many of them, many lives were lost, people imprisoned, even tortured um, in order to be set free from, from Britain's um, colonization, so to speak. And she was the queen during that time. So for, for a number of people, while people are trying to be respectful of her passing, because I'm respectful of her passing, I can respect her sense of duty. But what I cannot do is to look at her legacy through rose-tinted glasses. And I don't think that would be right to do. Um, I, I don't think that would make any sense. It's definitely not consistent with who I am. I think that in order for us to fully encapsulate a legacy, it is important for us to understand 
the history, the legacy, what she what she did, what she did not do, what she failed to do. So for a lot of people, if she like me, if she had led by being vocally visible against racial injustice and inequality in Britain and, ad- and addressed both historical and present-day systemic racism, she would have had a lot of legitimacy and credibility in a number of nations, including those that still have her head of state moving her as head of state. So I think this is all part of it. Let me give uh, Ms. Lipscomb the last word on this. What do you think overall, given how complex the legacy of the crown is, uh, that her legacy will ultimately be? Well, I absolutely respect what's being said about the British Empire and and colonization. I think, though, that actually, if we were to really look to what the Queen's legacy has been, it's been the creation of the Commonwealth, which has been an, an institution that has been about people being equal and about creating alliances and uh, professional professional associations. And I think that she has, it's the Commonwealth, in fact, that has, that spoke out against, um, for example, apartheid um, or um, challenged a number of sort of practices in the 1970s, but particularly yep. that were uh, ones that were negative towards um uh, people of color, and I, so I feel like that actually the Commonwealth has been a, uh, an institution for good. And if we if we were to put her name to anything, it's been presiding over the the decolonization, the post imperial world, and that was the institution of which she was most proud. And it wouldn't have got off the ground without her. Susanna Lipscomb, Shola Mas Shogbamimu, thank you both very much. And up next on the readout, she met thirteen sitting U.S. presidents, thirteen of them. Queen Elizabeth's special relationship with the United States is next, after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Over the course of her lifetime, Queen Elizabeth met with 13 sitting U.S. presidents, hosting and visiting commanders-in-chief everywhere from Buckingham Palace to Baltimore's baseball stadium. She met her first president, Harry Truman, while still a princess, just 25 years old. Truman reportedly told her that he hoped, when you leave, you will like us even better than when you came. Elizabeth made her first state trip to the United States as queen in October of 1957, where she met with President Dwight D. Eisenhower. The two corresponded by letter for years afterwards. The queen even gave Eisenhower her recipe for grilled scones. During the U.S. Bicentennial celebration, President Gerald Ford danced with the queen at a state dinner to the song The Lady is a Tramp, played by the Marine Band. 
1982, the Queen went horseback riding with President Ronald Reagan through the grounds of Windsor Castle. He later hosted Elizabeth and Philip at the Reagans' home in Santa Barbara, where the Queen had her first experience with Tex-Mex cuisine, feasting on tacos and enchiladas. In 1991, President George H.W. Bush took Queen Elizabeth to a Baltimore Orioles game, her first ever baseball game. During that trip, she also received a standing ovation when she became the first British monarch to address Congress. The Queen also met with President Barack Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama, who during their first visit to Buckingham Palace, brought her a video iPod filled with photos and videos of the royal couple's trips to the U.S. back in the 1950s, or back to the 1950s. And most recently, in June of last year, the Queen hosted President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden at Windsor Castle for tea. Joining me now is John Meacham, Pulitzer Prize-winning author, presidential historian, and host of the Fate of Fact podcast. Um, always good to see you, John Meacham. Talk about the special relationship, because my understanding is that the special relationship was the, was the British idea. It was Britain's idea and not ours. It was. Uh, as Harold Macmillan uh, once said, uh, the former prime minister, we are the Greeks in the new Roman Empire. Uh, they saw themselves as a civilizing force uh, for these uh, rude, uh, wealthy uh, new worlders. And so they, they had an idea that uh, their role in the world could, to some extent, be secured by a close alliance with us to sort of take us by the hand as we uh, toddled across the, the world <laughs> stage. The Americans had a different view, uh, as you as you might imagine, but uh, particularly during World War II, when, when Britain stood alone against fascism in the Western <laughs> world after the fall of France, uh, they, they earned a, a good bit of uh, our grateful capital. You know, it's interesting because you go back, I mean, those who've watched, I guess, a lot of people watch The Crown and kind of get a lot of their ideas about what about the family from yeah, then. Yeah, it's a fictional sure. piece. But I mean, one of the things that is sort of striking is that Elizabeth, the line, uh, her line of succession came from the fact that her, um, oh, wait a minute, I think Biden is speaking. Are we going to Joe Biden? Yes, let's go to Joe Biden. With the people of the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth and their grief. Now, now let me talk about why we're all here. 60 days, 60 days from the midterm elections. So I want to be crystal clear about what's at stake in the ballot. Your right to choose is on the ballot. No, this is a fact. These are not, it's not hyperbole, any of this. Your Social Security that you paid for is on the ballot. Look at what they put out. They want to do away with it. They want. Okay, uh, President Biden is now speaking about the midterm elections. I'm going to go back to John Meacham uh, since we are talking about the queen. I I was going to say that she only became queen because her father had to step in, not just because her uncle um, married a divorcee, but his sympathies. His his sympathies were not with the allies. Um, And so it is sort of Britain's fate was kind of decided by the fact that he was pushed out um, and that it was her father and then, of course, her um, and so Britain could have had a very different fate. Oh, it was a, a, a 19, late 1930s. You, you had a remarkable uh, turn of events where Edward VIII, uh, who had been the Prince of Wales, uh, who was sympathetic, uh, to say the least, to what was unfolding in Germany and uh, also in, in Italy, uh, the tendency toward, toward fascism, uh, he abdicates, which opens the way for his brother. And then uh, and he they only had two daughters, uh, Elizabeth, uh, 
the second as she became, uh, being the senior daughter. So she was not born expecting, uh, no one expected her to become, to become queen. And I think it's one of those fates, it's one of those moments that is what makes this story so interesting. She's born in the Roaring Twenties. Uh, her fate is shaped in the Depression uh, as, it, as the world is marching to war because of fascism. Uh, the remarkable uh, resilience uh, of the British people and the British royal family during the Blitz, uh, which began right about now in September 1940. For 57 straight days and nights, the Luftwaffe bombed civilian targets in, in England, transforming warfare by making civilians into combatants. And it was her first radio address uh, was in October 1940, uh, where she you, you played some of it, where she talked about the dangers of war and she served in uniform. Uh, and that's not myth. Right. That's not legend. Uh, all of that happened. Uh, Buckingham Palace was bombed. And Winston Churchill stood there and said, you know, if this Long Island story of ours is to end at last, let it only end when we are all choking in our blood upon the ground. And that spirit of courage was infectious. And we forget Britain stood alone yeah. after the fall of France in, in May of 1940. And so uh, there are many things uh, to say about the royal family and about monarchy and about the British Empire. But that chapter uh, is unsullied, I believe. The other thing that I find so fascinating is she spoke to our politics in this indirect way. But just because something's indirect doesn't mean it's not real. I want to read you one thing, if I may, from um, sure. this is the night she became queen, uh, the coronation in 1953 at the recommendation of Winston Churchill, who was in his second prime ministership. During the McCarthy era in the United States, 1953, this is a year before, year and a half before McCarthy is censured. This is what she said on the night she became queen. Parliamentary institutions, with their free speech and respect for the rights of minorities and the inspiration of a broad tolerance in thought and expression, all this we conceive to be a precious part of our way of life and outlook. It was an affirmation of... An imperfectly realized, but persistently argued and pursued Anglo-American tradition of human liberty. And Lord knows in the 21st century, when so many illiberal forces are on the march, we can heed those words with profit. Yeah, amen. Absolutely. John Meacham, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Really appreciate you. We're back after this. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow.
Not only did the world change during Queen Elizabeth's 70-year reign, but the monarchy itself has evolved significantly. Here's NBC's Keir Simmons. For the first time, the Queen opened the royal family to the public eye. She encouraged her children to live lives beyond the palace walls. In some ways, the royal family appeared just like the rest of us, vulnerable. The tragedy of Princess Diana was an especially dark moment for the royal family. There was growing anger in Britain that the monarchy was out of touch, detached and aloof. The Queen quickly returned to London from her vacation home to pay tribute to Diana and face a challenge to modernise the monarchy. I, for one, believe there are lessons to be drawn from her life and from the extraordinary and moving reaction to her death. Queen Elizabeth set out to change the face of monarchy. It would be more open, compassionate, in touch with a changing British public. Institutions which in turn must continue to evolve if they are to provide effective beacons of trust and unity. NBC's Keir Simmons, thank you. And up next, Trump's buddy, Steve Bannon, turns himself over to authorities in New York. He is now under indictment on a litany of money laundering, fraud, and conspiracy charges. Go figure. We'll be right back. This is an irony. On the very day the mayor of this city has a delegation down on the border, they're persecuting people here to try to stop on the border. You gotta love New York. Steve Bannon, once Donald Trump's chief White House strategist, appeared in handcuffs today in a New York City courtroom where he pleaded not guilty to charges of defrauding thousands of Trump devotees as part of a fundraising scam that claimed to be a private effort to build Trump's wall across the southern border, which actually turned out to be a fundraiser for lifestyle money for the fundraisers. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg and New York Attorney General Letitia James announced the indictment earlier today. He and Bill, we, Bill the Wald, are being charged for defrauding these donors out of more than $15 million and for laundering the proceeds to further advance and to conceal the fraud. The simple truth is that it is a crime to profit off the backs of donors by making false pretenses. In all, Bannon was indicted on six counts tied to money laundering, fraud, and conspiracy. Now, you may remember that fraud, that Trump pardoned the alt-right former Breitbart editor on similar federal charges just hours before leaving the White House. But that won't help them this time. Pardons do not cover state charges. In a statement to NBC News, Bannon said, quote, this is nothing more than a partisan political victim weaponization of the criminal justice system. Despite the fact that the same exact prosecutor, Alvin Bragg, declined to prosecute Trump. This comes just seven weeks after Bannon was convicted on two federal counts of contempt of Congress. Joining me now, Hugo Lowell, congressional reporter for The Guardian, and Charles Coleman, civil rights attorney and MSNBC legal analyst. Um, let's, well, actually, well, let's get to, to these charges first, Charles. Uh, just to explain very quickly for those who are concerned that there's double jeopardy involved, why be him being charged with the same kind of fraud this second time is not that. First of all, Joy, the double jeopardy rule would not apply here because he was not convicted. He was not pardoned. In fact, he wasn't fully prosecuted on the federal level for these charges. So there's no single jeopardy initially that exists. Secondly, with respect to there was a loophole in New York state law, which was recently closed by the state assembly, which would have ended any question around this with respect to double jeopardy and Steve Bannon being charged here. But again, because he was not charged and was not convicted on a federal level, 
level, the legal question around double jeopardy is actually far simpler than some people have made it out to be. Yeah. And you I mean, he's this is an interesting sort of development in that what he's charged with is not hurting the republic or fomenting, you know, an insurrection. It's hurting Trump donors. Um, I wonder inside of Trump world, is he being supported or not? Because it was his Trump's own people that he harmed. Well, that's an interesting question, because if you think about it, like you said, these are all Trump supporters in New York City who actually sent him money. And so the question becomes, at a certain point, does it become better or worse for business for you to be sort of persecuted by a politicized media and and, and politicized justice system that has been weaponized against all things Trump? I think that that narrative holds to some degree. But when you start talking about defrauding actual Trump supporters, I'm not sure it goes so well. And so his sort of martyrdom that he's been leaning into this entire time may not play well with respect to this audience, because now you've defrauded your own people, so to speak. You've taken money and grifted from your own supporters. And yeah, you're, the same question to you, Hugo. Look, I think Trump world's been very silent on this, which is always telling. If uh, they want to defend someone, they are full-throated uh, with that defense. I think in this case, kind of Bannon's been left to his kind of own devices. He's left with his own attorney here. And I think that's indicative of the fact that Trump world isn't that impressed with what happened. The fact that Bannon decided to use money that was destined to go towards the border war and then basically enriched himself and then his associates. And I think even by the standards of Trump world, that was maybe a grift too far. Yeah. And let's let's go on to this this other big development that happened today. And that is, of course, that the Justice Department has now appealed this decision by speaking of Trump world, Trump's uh, uh, the judge who seemed to be very much on Trump's side. So the intelligence community's review, this is the appeal. The intelligence community's review and assessment cannot be regularly cannot be readily segregated from the Department of Justice and FBI activities in connection with the ongoing criminal investigation and uncertainty regarding the bounds of the court order and its implications for the activities of the FBI has caused the intelligence community in consultation with the DOJ to pause temporarily this critically important work. Moreover, the government and the public are irreparably injured when a criminal investigation of matters involving risks to national security is enjoined. So the Department of Justice is trying to basically get this lawyer, this judge, to enjoin her own order and to pause it. Um, Charles, I'll start with you. I mean, it doesn't seem like there are a lot of chances of doing that, but what do you make of the appeal? Well, Joy, when you are a private litigant, you are only concerned concerned about the results. But however, when you are litigating in the interest of the public, you can be concerned about the results and the rationale. And I think that in this case, it's not just the results of the order that the DOJ was alarmed by. It was the rationale that they could not allow us to be to go to go forward and not challenge with respect to an appeal. And that rationale is laid out very clearly, I think, in a well-written appeal on behalf of the DOJ. They basically said, look, You have bifurcated this case into somehow separating the criminal aspect to from the investigative aspect without any regard for the national security implications. You can't do that. Like that is a big issue. And I think that they lay that out, not to mention that you have extended a level of discretion around executive privilege, which, number one, should not exist. And number two, there's no precedent for. And so I think the DOJ understood that 
they could probably live with the results in the large scheme of themes regarding a special master in as much as the FBI has already gone through the documents, they know what's there. But it was the rationale that they had to challenge because if this were to remain on the books as standing law, as precedent for future endeavors, you never know where this could lead. And so I think it's that that was what pushed it over the edge. And I understand why they made the appeal. And I honestly do think that they may have a shot in some respects of getting that injunction. And, you know, Hugo, what's the thinking either at the DOJ side or in the Trump world side? Because, you know, there are a few things that the Trump side didn't do. They never claimed executive privilege. Now, the question is, are they now going to do that? Are they now going to try to assert something that they can't have because these aren't their documents um, and sort of start making the claims that it did feel like Judge Cannon was trying to prompt them to make? What is the thinking now on how they go forward? And do they start making some of the claims she seemed to be teeing up for them? Yeah, no, it's a really good point you're making about how the judge in this case effectively made the arguments on behalf of Trump's lawyers. If you look at the original filings from Trump's legal team, they're very muddled. You have kind of invocations of attorney-client privilege, and then in a separate filing, they were just talking about privilege generally, like they were just going to assert privilege over these documents, and that would be it. Uh, in terms of kind of executive privilege, you know, I think you have to wait and see what they're going to do. I don't think Trump legal knows what they want to do yet. And I think a lot of this is because they, as well as us, are looking at that motion to stay from the Justice Department tonight and kind of realizing that Judge Cannon has a decision to make here, right? The fact that she prevented the Justice Department from reviewing the seized materials meant the FBI could not review the seized materials in terms of a broad intelligence community risk assessment. The FBI is both part of the intelligence community and it's also part of the Justice Department. And by telling the Justice Department, you know, you can't look at any of these materials, the intelligence community went, oh, are we allowed to look at these documents as well? And screwed the entire process up. And so I think uh, Trump legal is kind of nervously looking at how the DOJ proceeds next, how Judge Cannon proceeds next. It, it, right. And, and I think that's that's the thing that is so inscrutable and difficult to get through, Charles, is that she's essentially enjoined a national security investigation effectively because They've all already looked at this material. They can't segregate their minds from what they've already seen. And yet they've got to try to find out what damage has been done to our national security somehow without going back and looking at the documents. Like, it literally doesn't make any sense even to a layperson like myself. No, you're right. And I think that that's exactly why Merrick Garland and DOJ went forward with respect to this appeal. I, I think it was just one of those things where you can't make sense out of the rationale. And again, from a precedent place, something like this can't remain on the books without being challenged, because at least in an appeal, one way or the other, the court will have to explain itself in a way that's going to give guidance for future cases that may come in this vein. They're going to have to say either this reasoning was wrong for the following reasons, or we believe that this was okay and appropriate for the following reasons, which then gives future prosecutors a roadmap in terms of how to approach it. But to leave it where it was would just be a disaster, because as you said, for so many different reasons, the way that this judge parsed out that order, you can't make heads or tails of it in so many different regards around how are you supposed to continue the investigation or halt the investigation, but at the same time, continue to look through the national security documents and deal with those concerns with, with material that's so sensitive and your reasoning behind how you've de determined one versus the other is not rooted in anything that someone who's been practicing law for almost 20 years can follow. Or even, at least according to Neil Katyal, that somebody who's like a first-year law student could follow, because apparently he said even they would have been able to figure it out that none of that made any sense. Hugo Lowe, uh, Charles Coleman, thank you both very much. Okay, and meanwhile, the world did lose another icon today with the passing of pioneering journalist Bernard Shaw. A look back at his remarkable career next.
America has lost a pioneering black journalist. Bernard Shaw, who was CNN's chief anchor for two decades and was with the network when it launched in 1980. He was a man who ushered America calmly through some of, through some of this country's most seminal moments, from the assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan. We can report that shots were fired as President Reagan left the Washington Hilton Hotel. To the launch of Operation Desert Storm, live from Baghdad. It was like the fireworks finale on the 4th of July at the base of the Washington Monument. Yeah, but. but for many of us, it was his first question during the 1988 presidential debate between George Herbert Walker Bush and Michael Dukakis, which might have changed the course of history. Governor, if Kitty Dukakis were raped and murdered, would you favor an irrevocable death penalty for the killer. No, I don't, Bernard, and I think you know that I've opposed the death penalty during all of my life. Uh, I don't see any evidence that it's a deterrent, and I think there are better and more effective ways to deal with violent crime. Dukakis never recovered. Shaw retired in 2001. This is Bernie's last show at the anchor desk. I'm going to hold on. And Judy Woodruff was right. It will be hard to let him go. Bernard Shaw died Wednesday of non-COVID-related pneumonia. He was 82 years old and a phenomenal journalist who inspired so many of us who are in this business in many ways, in large part, thanks to his example. And that is tonight's readout. MSNBC is going to be live here all night. Today's news requires more facts. Palestinians and Israelis are blaming each other for the tragedy that has inflamed the region. More analysis. Most of the states with the worst rates of gun deaths are ones where Republicans control the state government. And more perspective. This is not just about women and pregnant people in Texas. This is about people across this country. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.